0: Well, good morning, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm preparing the way, I have to like clear everything out. So today is the last message in our series, Prepare the Way. I asked Pastor Josh if we could do like a balloon drop or something like, woo, last message, we've been here. We've been in the Old Testament for a long time, you guys. And today is our last message before we go into the New Testament. You know how long we've been in the Old Testament? Anyone have a guess? Anybody? I hear 10 years, 6 months. Yes? We've been in the Old Testament for 30 weeks, including today. Today makes week number 30 that we've been preaching step by step, starting in Genesis. Back in January, Pastor Josh preached about Genesis 3, showing how the gospel begins in Genesis right after the fall, showing the first proclamation of the gospel, That happens in the garden right after the fall. God's glorious purposes starting right there. And so since then, we've been preaching step by step through all of these books. And here we are 30 weeks later, closing with the book of Malachi. So far in the pulpit here, we have spent, with my math, give or take a few minutes, 23 hours and nine minutes preaching through the Old Testament so that means that I could preach 51 minutes and it'd be like a full day. We, we could probably make it to 24 hours if we wanted to today. Or, or not. I, I don't know. So far, if you spent one hour reading through the F-260 plan every week, and that, that could be a conservative estimate, that could be average, I'm, I'm not sure. Different people take different amounts of time, and depending on the week, I'm spending a different <laughs> level of time just looking for understanding maybe or asking clarifying questions, but if you spent one hour per week reading through F260, and you were one of the ones that started with us in January, you'll have clocked 30 hours reading the scriptures already this year. At least 30 hours. And I'm sure, you know, all of our D groups just stayed a one hour maximum, right? We never do any more than an hour. We never talk longer than that. But if you only did an hour, that's 30 hours you spent talking about the scriptures with people in your D groups. I'm sure it's, it's probably like 40 hours or maybe even more than that. But Think of all the community. Think of all the understanding. Think of all the relationships that have been built in those hours that we've already clocked in studying through the Old Testament together. Think of an insight that you've already learned that maybe you didn't know before. Think of, I mean, there are some of us in the room that have never uh, been able to say, I've read through the Old Testament together. Uh, I've never been able to get this far through the year in a reading plan, and maybe I didn't do every day, and that's okay, but the brothers and sisters have helped me stay on track. And it's July. It's the last week in July, and I'm still doing my reading plan. I didn't drop off from Leviticus like I did all the time. And so we're all in process. I almost said we're all in this together. But the community of the saints is helping us to stay on track. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So as we close the Old Testament today, think of all the evidence of grace you've seen in your life since you've been hearing the sermon, since you've been doing the plan, since you've been talking with with your friends about this. Think of what the Lord has done since January, or whenever you hopped in with us. So by God's grace, together we've been tenacious in our study of the Old Testament. So I'm kind of a word nerd, self-proclaimed word nerd. Y'all ever seen those calendars that you tear off, like, and you have a word of the day every day? Well, today, our word is tenacious. So that's going to kind of flavor through the whole thing, and and we're going to see that there's There are tenacious themes that run throughout our text, that run throughout the Old Testament. um, But together, we've been tenacious. We've stuck it out while we've been reading through the Old Testament. So no one actually looked at a dictionary anymore. But Google defines the word tenacious as tending to keep a firm hold of something. Another way is persisting in existence or not easily dispelled. And so a lot of things, great and small, throughout the scriptures and in our own lives can be described as tenacious. Can you think of something in your life that just hangs on, just doesn't let go? In Florida, we have these things called sandspurs. Have you ever heard of a sandspur? They really get in, your, they get in your heel and they get on your, your like pant leg or something like that. Um, kind of like beggar weeds, that's another thing. And they'll just, you'll get home and they'll just be all over you and you can't get them out of your clothes. Um, they just hold on. And they just won't go anywhere. They're, they're trying to get to the new place so that they can sprout another plant. I'm reminded of another thing that's tenacious. Um, how many of y'all have ever been out west, like kind of in a canyon or a desert? Y'all ever seen landscapes like that before? So just a couple years ago, um, Jill and I were out in uh, Zion Canyon, which is out in Utah. Just beautiful, arid landscapes. And see this right here? There's like no moisture out there. There are no trees growing. But you can hike through and every once in a while, you'll see a beautiful, full, flourishing plant that's just radiating beauty in the midst of like, where are the resources? How how did it ever get there? How's it holding on? How are these flowers not wilting yet in the middle of just seemingly nothing? Tenacity. They won't let go. And so we can see in the Old Testament there there are certain themes of people and, and places, there are certain tendencies in God's people that just won't let go. So last week, Brandon showed us an example of what we could safely call a mountaintop experience for Israel. One hundred years after returning from exile in Babylon, the Israelites, tenaciously hopeful that God would restore their homeland, they rebuilt Jerusalem's wall, and they constructed a new temple. And even though Jerusalem wasn't exactly restored to its former glory, it was a new day. It was another chance. It was was a chance to come back and and see God doing what he does and and having God's presence faithfully proclaimed through the temple. And so what do they do? They dust off their Bible, their collective Bible that, that one guy reads to everybody else, and they stood for hours reverently hearing the word. And then they responded with passion. They confessed their sin. They remembered who God was. They committed to follow God with renewed fervor. It was a beautiful thing that they had returned and, and they, they said, we're here, we're back. We love the Lord. This is a new era for us. And that was a beautiful thing to hear from Brandon and, and to celebrate about God's people. But what else do we know about God's people, y'all? Prone to wonder, prone to forget, just all too easily. So like the rest of the Old Testament, it's not long until Israel realized that even though they had been gone for over 100 years, they'd come back, they thought everything could be different, something else in their life was tenacious, their selfishness, their tendency to wander from God and to love other things more than him. So like that flower in the desert, their selfishness and their idolatry was flourishing against all odds, and their worship had become careless and mechanical and they were, failed to be, they were failing to be thrilled by God's greatness. So not too long at all after what we heard in Nehemiah, they found themselves in a place where the temple was still going, the sacrifices were still happening, but things were just going through the motions. There was an emptiness. And they weren't thrilled anymore by God's glory. So that's our main point today. If you don't get anything else, if you're a note taker, if you want one line this is what we're actually talking about today. Our main point is that careless worship is a failure to be thrilled by God's greatness. So that's where they were. They were in a place where worship was happening, technically, but it could be described as careless. And so that careless worship is a failure to be thrilled by God's greatness. So normally that's where I would say That's where our text picks up for this morning in Malachi chapter 1. But guess what? Before Malachi chapter 1 ever starts, while you're still in the book of Nehemiah, just a few chapters later, it was already evident that their worship was mechanical. At the end of the book, just five chapters after they recommit their lives, Nehemiah leaves for Persia for a little while. We don't know how long. Maybe a couple years, maybe 10 years, maybe even longer than that. But when he comes back, Listen to what he finds. So Nehemiah chapter 13, I'm just going to read a couple verses to you. In those days, I saw that the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, basically forcefully calling them to repentance. And so he leaves for a little while. And by the time that he comes back, the rules that he had set out, don't marry people that worship other gods. Keep the Sabbath. They're, they're not doing it. Teach these things to your children. You remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And teach these to your children Not only were their children not taught these, they didn't even know the language of the commands anymore. So even if they wanted to start teaching, they'd have to have like ESL first. It had been so long and the priorities were so low that they didn't even speak the language of the Old Testament anymore. And so Nehemiah comes back and responds with anger. So even after Nehemiah's call to repentance, even after he whooped up on them, pulling out their hair, And forcing them to make an oath to God, knowing that they had done something wrong. Even after that, their disobedience persisted. And so that's where Malachi is. Some people say that Malachi is is contemporaneous to this part of Nehemiah's life. When Nehemiah comes back and and tries to set them straight, the things that Nehemiah sees are the things that Malachi also sees. And the things that both of them are seeing are are what God is speaking against and, and calling them to turn away from. So Israel wasn't boarding up the temple. They weren't stopping their sacrifices. They hadn't moved on. They hadn't changed their religious status on Facebook or anything. They continued going through the motions, but that's all they were doing. Their relationship with God could be described as mechanical, hollow, and careless. Why? Because they had failed to be thrilled by God's greatness. And they started seeking joy in other places. And I know that all of us, including myself, can identify with that at times. So this morning, we'll observe Israel's plight from three different angles. We'll see one, the cause of their carelessness, two, we'll see the cost of their carelessness, and three, we'll see the help that God provides for the helpless in Christ. So let's start reading this morning. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. It's the last book of the Old Testament, it's near the middle. God's word says this. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? He says, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? And he says, By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, isn't that evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, isn't that evil? Try presenting that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us? With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. And you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Will I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat. Who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So, as we consider today this reading from God's word, we can see what Malachi describes as the root of Israel's carelessness. And as we look at the root, which we'll see in a couple places whenever we can read through the text and kind of break down the sentences, we'll see clearly that their carelessness is stemming from a failure, a failure to be thrilled by God's greatness. So let's see two different places in the text here where Malachi makes it crystal clear. See how verse 10 connects to verse 11. And, and whenever I read this to you again, look for the word for. Because the word for in this context is is kind of sounding like the word because. There's a causal link going on here. So verse 10 says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So verse 14 evidence of the same thing. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord is what is blemished. For, because I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So notice the relationship here going on in the text. Grammar is important. Words have meaning here. And so we're seeing two ideas and a causal relationship. Your worship is careless here because you're not reverencing, you're not respecting, you're not holding the fact that I am a great king in proper regard. God doesn't accept the lame sacrifices. God doesn't accept the blemish sacrifices. God doesn't accept the half-hearted praise because he is a great king. Not because he's in, in the wrong mood. Not because maybe the rules just don't say so. Not because that's not how you were brought up. But because of a Uh, independently standing fact that there is no body or no entity or or no thing at all that has a greatness greater than God. He is the ultimate authority. And they're acting like, maybe I'll just give you what I can. So you see this relationship here. The half-hearted praise is condemnable because of the greatness of God not because of the expectations of the other people around them, but solely because it's violating and disrespecting God's greatness. So this truth plays out from the opposite perspective. Why is is it corrupt? Only because of God's greatness. So think of it like, like a sliding scale. There's like an inverse relationship here. So as their view of God gets larger the things of this world and, and the carelessness that's offending the Lord will get smaller and, and smaller. And, so, and maybe as they're, they're focused on other things, then as the view of that gets larger and larger, then their view of God, by relationship, is shrinking. Think of the old song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. What's the next line? And the things of earth... Will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace and so you're beholding two different things it's not like how can i just manage all these tasks and do all these things and and check off all these boxes it's what are you actually beholding and you can only behold and be in awe and be thrilled by so much god has created us with this capacity for praise and as we get excited and value supremely the things of the world Our hearts begin to crowd out the things of God. And so his glory and grace is the thing that's strangely dim to the people of Israel. Listen to how John Piper would describe this. He says, how does what Malachi is saying here cause careless worship? Malachi's answer is that it makes a person bored with God and excited about the world. Bored with God, excited about the world. If you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy will be very exciting. And if you can't see the sun, then you'll be impressed with street streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, then the most exciting thing would be fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, then inevitably you fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. We can only behold so much. And once we, once we cease beholding the things of God, once we're not thrilled by him anymore, then by default, we're, we're thrilled by these fleeting other things. So in light of all of that, in light of that framework, think about bringing those sheep, the ones with the blind eyes, the ones with the lame legs, the ones that have that little blemish on them, or maybe that sheep that's not even yours, taken by violence, where does that desire come from? Why are they doing what they're doing? So let's apply this to Israel. Israel is more thrilled by their money. So they offer the blemished sheep. Why? Because sheep are their livelihood. And these are the ones that can't sell. So you've got to do something with them. They're sitting here on the clearance rack, so I might as well give this one to the Lord. They're more concerned with their own security. So they steal someone else's offering and label it as their own when they're not actually willing to feel the pain that comes with sacrifice. Maybe they're more concerned with looking like they have it all together. So they continue to show up, they go through the motions of worship, but they find themselves, like the Israelites, complaining under their breath the whole time. Maybe others can hear them, maybe not, but that spirit of complaining begins to grow. So why did they, and why do we, find ourselves in that place? Why have I found myself in that place too many times? Why have I found myself tired, careless, and half-hearted toward the Lord in my worship? It's because our hearts cease to be thrilled by him. It's not just because I need a break. It's not that I would just be re-energized if I just had a day off. It's because my mind and my spirit is not centered and thrilled by the things of God. I've found it somewhere else. So that's the cause of carelessness. Let's look quickly to the cost of their carelessness. So when we think about the motive of careless worship, it's easy to see that that we have to behold Christ or we start beholding something else. But let's look at exactly what is the essence of this half-hearted praise that God is talking about in the Israelites. If I had to sum up what this half-hearted praise looks like in one word, it would be worthless. It doesn't have value. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire upon my altar in vain. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. So underline that word in vain. Circle it, highlight it. That's the focus right there. They're kindling fire on the altar. They're bringing all the sacrifices. They're going through the motions. And it's being described by the Lord as vanity. So that word in vain right there. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so almost everywhere it's translated, it's translated the same way. In vain. Don't kindle fire like that. Vainly. But there's one example where the same word actually gets used um, in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And I just I feel that it, in a sense, would elaborate on what vanity even looks like sometimes. So think about it. David's out here. David's in the field. David's trying to avert a plague um, from the people of Israel here. And to do so, he needs to build an altar, and he needs to make a sacrifice to the Lord. He's away from what's familiar to him, so he has to find an altar. He'd have to find an altar to secure the location, find the sacrifice, perform the sacrifice. He's, he's not near home. So, but he knows that the sacrifice is what would avert the plague against God's people, right? You got that? We, we got a plague. We need a sacrifice. That's the solution. And so he's out here. Everybody knows it. They're suffering underneath the consequences of this plague, 2 Samuel chapter 24. And this rich guy that happens to have a strategic place, a threshing floor that would work for the job, says, David, I don't know about you, I'm suffering as much as you are, and I would be willing to just give you this and go find something for the sacrifice for you and just, you wouldn't even have to pay for it. Just make the sacrifice so that this plague would be over. Generosity, right? A a great help to David. But David responds like this. He says, no, but, he says, thanks, pretty much, but I will buy it from you at a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God in vain. But the text doesn't say in vain. This, the text says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which have cost me nothing. He says, this needs to have worth to me. He says, I need to, to be invested in this. I don't even want the appearance of getting a good deal on this or, or, just, or just doing this because it has to be done. I want this to have costed me something. And and when we think about praise that becomes half-hearted, I I think maybe that would be applicable. So David here wants it to be clear that his love for God was greater than his love for money. He wanted there to be no question out there at all. And if we're honest with ourselves, as we approach God in worship, as we seek to be faithful in, in the reading planet, and not just reading it in a worthless way, when we seek to be encouraging to the people that are in our house, to our husbands, to our wives, to our kids, to our roommates, how do we actually show Christ to them? And, and not just like say the right words, but in that tone that's like, mm-hmm, yeah, I know, you're, that's just what you're supposed to say. How, how do we actually do this in, in a way that's not vanity? How, how is that? We have to continue beholding the Lord there. So we've seen the cause and we've seen the cost but now let's look at the help for the careless. So there's good news in chapter 3 here as we continue through the book. Even though often we're found as lacking before the Lord, God doesn't leave us in our carelessness. God doesn't leave us in, in our entrenched patterns of sin forever. God doesn't allow us his children to stay without being called to repentance. God is ultimately and sovereignly drawing us to himself and, and purifying us and making us into his image. Even when it feels like that hasn't happened in months, even whenever you say, where's the progress, Lord, I've been doing the same thing over and over. And I do feel like my heart's in it, but where's the sanctification Lord? God doesn't leave us there. He faithfully calls us to repentance, and He promises to send help. So let's flip over to chapter 3 and read the first four verses here. God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. And as in former years, beautiful things here, a a, a text full of promise and promises that may not sound like your typical daily Bible promises for life. Like God is so constant and faithful and God makes promises in, in areas of our lives that we don't even think about sometimes. So let's notice four things from Malachi chapter three here. The first is that God is patiently sending more messengers, You ever had to have more messengers? You ever had someone tell you something once and then maybe told you something again and then you even like nodded at them? You don't know what they said. And God continues with Israel to send messenger after messenger, after prophet, after priest, after king, after everything. And how many hundreds of years had they been admonished in the same way? How many prophets had come that we've even looked at? How many prophets did we skip over in the F260 plan that had been calling them to the same repentance. And here's God patiently sending more messengers. So the beginning of chapter three here, he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. It's the namesake of our sermon series, Prepare the Way. It's been God being patient with his people and then wisely and sovereignly straightening the road for the Messiah. We'll see so much more of the beauty of this next week. Whatever we hear from John chapter one, because that messenger has a name and that name is John the Baptist and he's preparing the way for the Messiah here. So God is patiently sending his messengers. Look at the second thing. Number two is that God still chooses to come to careless people. As God's people continue to distance themselves from him, God continues in pursuit of them. Even choosing to come to the temple, even choosing to come Physically, even choosing to send the Messiah. After disobedience, after disobedience, after disobedience, he continues with more fervor, seeking out his children. What overflowing grace and mercy that we get from the Lord. How patient is he with us? Day after month after year. In these things that maybe we haven't even been made aware of yet. He's patient with his people. The third thing. God's presence is terribly awe-inspiring. Here's one of those promises I was telling you about that don't sound like your typical promises. Let me read verse two again. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will purify the sons of Levi, verse three, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the lord. So although God is loving, although God is patient, although God is full of mercy, nothing that we talk about this morning about God's judgment, nothing that we talk about about God's justice negates any of that. I think sometimes we're we're playing this zero sum game and you know like the more justice and wrath over here, the less love somehow like like this is only reinforcing that view that God is ultimately loving and patient. We see that God is coming here in judgment. Who can endure? Who can stand? So just like some of God's promises on the surface appear to be beautiful and hope-giving, some of God's promises, if we really think about them, are terrifying. If we really believe this, if we really relate to God in, in the way that we feel that we do, and we read a text like this, we say that, I better not persist in disobedience. Look at what really happens before the Lord to people that are unrepentant. God has promised to judge people who continue in sin and who don't heed his warnings to turn back to him. Verse one up there said, the Lord Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Think about that in the context of Israel in Malachi's day. They're doing their thing. They're not really into it. They're checking off the boxes and then boom, Here's God in all of his judgment, all of his righteous holiness. Think of the whiplash. But he promises to. And even when his face has grown strangely dim, nothing about him has changed. So number four, God is the ultimate agent of Israel's purity. Now, I know that can be kind of like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? But there are, whenever the Lord is saving us, the Lord is calling us to himself, the Lord has promised, like Philippians 1.6, God will complete every good work that he started in you, in Christ. And he says that whenever that day comes, when we stand before him, that we'll be like him. And you go, oh, we got some progress to make here. And there are so many different ways in which the Lord chooses to accomplish that goal, including his people. So, so you have the, the word constantly sharpening us. You have our, our home lives. Where we're encouraging and sharpening one another. You have people within the church. And God is using them to make you more like Jesus. But God is the ultimate agent of this sanctification here. It says here, notice that Israel doesn't turn over a new leaf because they're feeling especially motivated today or especially guilty maybe. Notice that whenever he's calling them to repentance, it's not the fact that they feel heavy enough about it that changes them. In chapter 3, there's nothing about their change of will that's come from them. Let me read this to you again. Verses 3 and 4. And when I read it to you, grammatically think about who's doing the changing here. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he, God, will purify the sons of Levi and he will refine them like gold and silver. And then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord because he purified them. Verse four, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so after all of that refinement, after all of that painful process of making his children more like him, there's a chance that they could get there at that status of being pleasing to the Lord and say, I do half bad. How about that? But he makes it clear in here, in the text, he's done the refinement. The only way their offerings are pleasing to him is because he has sat in refinement over them. So knowing that, and knowing our experience as believers, Which one of these statements is true? One, on our own, we would never repent and walk with the Lord, even if he commanded us, which he did. Or two, is this one true? God holds us accountable for our sin. He sits in judgment of people that don't repent. And he calls us to repent of our sins and walk in obedience. Which one of those is true? Somehow both of them are. Somehow the responsibility is lined with us to turn from our sin and to walk and step with the gospel. And somehow, God is the only one that will ever generate obedience in his children. What a beautiful mystery. What a terrifying thing. That if God doesn't do the work in me, that I'll never obey him, even if he tells me to. And even if I feel like maybe for a minute that I want to, I'll never, ever, ever follow through with it without the empowering work of the Spirit. This is the weighty, painful confusing truth that is so hard to get your hands around whenever you're living the Christian life. The thing that can just be so frustrating and hard to nail down. And when we say stuff like we're all in process around here, sometimes it's easy to say, yeah, be nice. I'm trying. I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. So give me a little slack. Like sometimes When we say we're all in process, it would be easy for me to say, I'm working on it. I'll be there in a minute. Just be nice. But that's nowhere near what we're saying there. Don't forget the nature of the process that we're all in. It's not a process of us trying harder and us reading the right books and us not saying that one thing that we always said that got us in trouble and us saying this other thing that has this buzzword in it that makes everybody happy. It's not anything like that. It's not just getting like a little bit better than you were last year. It's nothing like that. It's a process of us loosening our grip on our own track record. The fact that we would have achieved anything that was more like obedience. The Lord says, loosen your grip on that. The Lord says, trust in me. I'm sovereignly forming you into my image every day. Through new failures, through old struggles, through things that you thought you won like five years ago and somehow you're struggling with that again, God is sovereignly using that to refine you specifically. We're all in process. And that's a sovereign, mysterious process. A process that's somehow full of our effort and yet never advanced by our effort at the same time. It just calls me to worship, to think about that. So think about Philippians chapter 2. This is another way to bring, to bring some sort of, of light to that process. Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, do this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So both our will to serve him and the work that we do in obedience comes from God who works in us. So this morning, as we close, which do you find is more tenacious in its grip on your heart today, this week? The greatness of God or the cares of the world or the excitement that the world can offer you? And as we approach the communion table this morning, remember that God is a great king. And he cares about how we approach him in worship. Also remember that when our vision of him grows, that's when the things of this world grow strangely dim. And as we think about maybe struggles that persist for a long time, maybe things that you don't even want to admit to yourself sometimes about how you struggle in sanctification We have to remember that God is is the ultimate agent here. We're doing this in light of, God, you're a great king. Not in light of, how can I finally put this to bed? I'm ashamed of this. The Lord says, remember me, reverence me in my greatness, and then your offerings will be pleasing to me. So as we approach the table this morning, think about God at work in us. Think about the grace that He's offered us in Christ. Think about where you've been this week, possibly, and and how full of faith or or not full of faith you've been. Think about things in 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 your heart and in, in your family that that you would just need to confess to the Lord and, and say, God, that was, that was a manifestation of, of something evil in my heart. Or maybe that has been a manifestation of that. But remember that this is not formulaic. This is not, Lord, I'm confessing and now, you know. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. We have to lean not on our own track records. We can't even lean on our ability to repent right now. We just have to remember that God's a great king and that He inspires the worship of His people. So let's pray, Lord. We thank You for this truth from the Book of Malachi, and we thank You for Your patient, faithful calls for us to recenter our lives. Lord, we know we're prone to wander, and we know that our hearts really easily get excited about what are just simply idols. And for that, God, we ask for grace and mercy. We know that your judgment comes on idolatry. And God, we ask that you, by your greatness and by your power, that you would turn our hearts away from serving those things and loving those things. And that you would make our heart beat fast for you. That we would be thrilled by who you are. Thrilled by how we've seen you at work in our lives. That that's where we would get our, our glory from. That that's where our hearts would find rest and joy. God, as we approach the table this morning, we thank you for how you stood in our place. How every time we failed, that you lovingly paid for that. And you lovingly called us back to yourself. Lord, we thank you for another another chance, Lord, another measure of grace, another time when you've been so patient and kind with us. And God, as we partake, we ask that you would remind us of that and make us truly thankful. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.